Hey everybody, welcome back to The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards. I really appreciate you checking out this new episode, and I think it's going to be a good one. My guest today is a winemaker whose family goes all the way back to the beginning of Napa Valley wine, and I do mean all the way back. Even so, he's someone who's very much in the trenches when it comes to growing grapes and making wine. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. It's taken a bit to set this one up. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer back for another episode of The Taste. Um, got a guest in here today. Well, he's not in here, but he's on the phone. Mark Berenger. Been wanting to have Mark on for a long time. He's been in the business a long time, and uh, we have a lot of common friends growing around the valley, but we've never had the chance to really spend some time together, so I'm jazzed about today. I want to hear this guy's story. Welcome, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing good, Doug. Thank you for having me on. Um, you know, it's crazy times right now, so this gives us at least a little sense of normalcy, right? It is. It is. In fact, uh, once I started doing these things on the phone, I, I never used to give the date we're recording, but I'm doing it now just for kind of posterity. We're at April 28th, 2020. We've been sheltered in place for, what, a good five weeks now, I think, and we've got another four or five to go, sounds like, in California, but... Um, how are you holding up? How's the family? What are you What are you doing? You're at home. You run around. What's the really deal? Upset. Well, um, I've been working because uh, we are part of the uh, so-called essentials in Napa County, right? And uh, need to keep our wineries running. So uh, we're we're keeping things going, uh, keeping wines topped up, doing our rackings, trying to get stuff to bottle. Um, but then, yeah, it, when it comes to going home, we're just like everybody else, doing the shelter in place and trying to keep our heads low and. And be as safe as possible, being that we are going to work, we're even more concerned about, you know, not bringing something back to work or bringing something home that shouldn't be there. Right, right. We've got the same thing going. It's, it's, it's pretty strange with the wine business because we're allowed to keep vineyard operations going. That's going on full tilt here and throughout the valley. And cellar operations, we're racking wine and bottling and, uh, you know, carefully and with all the distancing we have to do and... And uh, masks and all that, but um, the business end is um, everyone's working from home, and naturally all the uh, hospitality venues are, at wineries are shut down until things open up again. So it's a, it's kind of a, it's a half on, half off. But I'm with you, and, but uh, not much traffic on the road, that's for sure. Yeah, it's got to be the best traffic I've seen in a long time. <laughs> but, uh, I think probably you know, like you, I, this is my travel season too. Yeah. So. I'm accustomed to being living out of a suitcase uh, at least a week or two a month this time of year. So uh, adjusting to that and being home more is, uh, has been a different perspective for me. Yeah, I've, I've got the same thing. My Annette's like, aren't you supposed, you know, usually you're gone. What are you doing here? <laughs> in fact, I looked at, my <laughs> yeah. cal- looked at my calendar. I was supposed to be on a trip to Korea and Singapore right now, but obviously that's not, not happening. Um, right. But anyway, listen, I've had a bunch of people on there, this podcast through the last year or two with family stories in Napa, which is great. And a lot of them go way back. But I think you're the winner, man, because from <laughs> what we can tell, your story goes back uh, like 150 years to 1869. Is that about right? That sounds about right. I believe uh, Jacob arrived, Jacob Berenger, my great-great-grandfather, arrived uh, out here around 1868, 1869. Um, and started working um, for Charles Crew um, back in those days. So, and he emigrated from was Germany. 
Yeah, so he uh, immigrated from a little town called Mainz uh, in the Rhine River region of Germany. Um, He actually was the second to arrive. His older brother, Frederick, had arrived in the United States first. Okay. Um, He had come into the New York area and established a pretty decent business uh, in the malting uh, area. Okay. Um, You know, one two things Germans know is beer and wine. So uh, (laughs) they were in beer uh, primarily at that time. Jacob was six years younger and had stayed behind in Germany because he was an accomplished winemaker there. He made wine in Berlin as well as in Mainz as well. And we have very little, um, you know, we don't have really good history back beyond their immigration. Okay. Um, thanks to a couple of world wars that disrupted record keeping and things like that in that region. Um, we don't have a real good history back there. Okay. And uh, so he started out in New York, but ended up, uh, he and his brother Frederick both ended up out here working with Charles Krug. That's what you were saying. Well, Jacob did. Yeah, okay. Frederick stayed behind in New York. Jacob, you know, after he helped his brother for a bit in New York, got a little itchy and wanted to get back to winemaking. And so, uh, you know, to put this into a timing perspective, he, t- you know, he took a ride or one of the first rides on the Transcontinental Railroad. Oh, cool. Um, it had just been completed. This is, you know, post-Civil uh, War uh, getting resolved. And uh, he he made his way out and yeah, gained employment with Charles himself Okay. and became his cellar master. And he did that for about a half a decade, maybe about five, six years until mm-hmm. he could save up enough money and was able, with Charles's help, to buy the neighboring property, um, what is now Behringer Brothers to this day. That's across the street, right? Yeah, it's so well, it's yeah next door and across the street. So right. we have we're adjacent to Krug there on on the uh, south side, and then we cross over Highway 29, of course, where the Rhine House and that's the right. historical winery are. Yeah, that's right. Your your corporate offices are right. Yeah, you're right next door to Charles Krug on this on the uh, east side of the Highway 29. Right, Got right. It. So the the tree tunnel, the historical tunnel of elms that runs on Highway 29, actually divides the property. Okay, mm-hmm. so the uh, I, most people probably, like myself, we think of Behringer when we drive by. We don't look at the corporate offices, you know, um, big, big, you know, winery on the east side. We look on the right side or the west side to the Rhine House, and it's like, hey, there's Behringer. Um, so the history of that house, was that is that something those guys built, or was it there? Yeah, so that's kind of where the brothers came together. Um, after Jacob had purchased the piece of property, he really didn't have— the means to do anything with it. And Frederick had quite a bit of wealth. Um, He had inherited the family fortune that was brought from Germany as well, because he was the eldest son and uh, had made even more of a fortune um, with the businesses he'd been doing. So he took a ride out on the train as well and and saw the property and fell in love with it. And uh, they decided to partner up. And that's how Behringer Brothers was created. But, you know, Frederick didn't stay at that time. He actually went back to the East Coast and he set up shop to distribute and sell the wine. He was a businessman and he had opened up a couple wine shops. And back then, of course, things were transferred in cask and bottles were brought into shops and filled up that way. We didn't bottle wine back in those days. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Um, that. So they shipped it in bulk, basically, in casks or barrels or some type of container. In bulk. Yeah, the barrels the barrels that we use today, the small 225-liter casks, were actually shipping vessels back okay. in those days. Huh. And it wasn't until much, much later that people discovered that the wines tasted better after they spent some time in them. Um, 
majority of the casts we use were large oval um, casts made even out of things like redwood because that's right. what was available. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know that. So your, our 60-gallon, 225-liter barrels that we all have and all use for aging our wines, their original purpose was for shipping bulk wine to other parts of the country. Right, right. <sighs> and uh, and even brandy back in the days of cognac, the, they, the way to get wine up to areas that were maybe long journeys, the wine itself was not very stable. That's where cognac really became a thing was... Uh, being able to make a concentrated product that would last and ship it in, in these barrels that would last a long time. Again, necessity is the mother. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So these guys, any idea what these guys were making, what, what type of grapes they were growing or what types of wines varietal wise? Yeah. I mean, you got to figure that they were German, so they had a lot of German varieties they brought over. But, you know, the main settlers of this valley were were two primary groups. And the Germans, of course, being one like us and Schramm, you know, Jacob Schramm, Transburg, mm-hmm. uh, Hans, Hans Cornell. You know, there's a lot of Germanic names running around. But the other side was a lot of Italians. Okay. Um, there was a lot, uh, it was kind of two communities at that time. And so we saw a lot of Italian varieties, um, Barbera, Nebbiolo, things like that were planted in this area. Much of that, of course, is gone now. But we were growing a lot of, you know, German whites like Riesling and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and, you know, of course, everything was blends. We didn't do varietal bottling in those days. Um, everything was kind of these blends that they put together. And we called it Chablis until we couldn't call it that anymore. <laughs> or Burgundy. Burgundy, you know? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember Burgundy. Yeah. I was drinking Burgundy in college. A gallo Some hearty, hearty Burgundy. A hearty Burgundy <laughs> in a Boda bag on a, up in Tahoe. Um, yeah, I always wondered why I had a headache. I thought it's because I drank too much. I'm not, maybe I just didn't hydrate enough. I can't remember, but probably the sugar. (laughs) (laughs) So, so these guys, they were, Behringer was pretty successful at that time. This is the late 1800s, early 1900s. They were cranking, weren't they locally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and to kind of finish that thought, you know, the question was kind of around the Rhine house and how it came to be. Right. Um, that was actually Frederick's home. So after they had gotten this business established, it only took about six or seven years before Frederick got the itch to come out too. So he finally moved out with his family and uh, wanted to build a home on the property. So the original home on the property, I think you've been on the property, Doug, Mm -hmm. um, there's the Hudson House, which is the culinary center where we do a lot of our you know, sit-down sit meals. Down, yeah. We have a, a teaching kitchen in there. Um, it was originally Madeline Commons kitchen mm-hmm. um, when we first built it in the 80s. Um, okay. But that was the original home on the property. The irony of it is it used to sit right where the Rhine House is today. Oh, no. Because I've been in there. I've had a couple of dinners, really nice dinners in there in the Hudson House. Yeah. So, so it was. So they moved it. Sounds they like. moved it. They picked it up <laughs> and they rolled it down the hill on some logs and uh, and replaced it where it sits today, so that Frederick could build his grand mansion in its spot, because that was the ideal home site on the property. So big brother, he's got the family fortune. He gets to put his house where he wants it. That's how it sounds, yep. sounds like. Okay, I get it. But younger brother got a gravity flow winery out of the deal, so uh, it was a pretty good trade. Yeah, tell me about that because I read somewhere first Gravity Flow Winery, right? Or that's, that's where they right. all were then. I, I what was the, what's the story backstory on that one? Well, you know, the majority of the wineries um, that were here prior 
were built out in the middle of the valley where they could fly in flat space. And a lot of the movement of wine revolved around um, pumping with hand pumps or things like that. But because of their, um, their knowledge from some facilities in Germany, they had the idea to build into the hillside to basically carve out a three-story structure with a road that went around the back where they could bring horse-drawn carriages up there, bring the fruit to the top floor and crush it. And it would just flow naturally down to the second floor. And that second floor um, is an amazing piece of engineering. It's actually tongue and grooved and just doweled together. There's not a nail in it. Wow. And it allowed it to swell just like a barrel does when it gets moisture on it. And it would seal itself. It was completely watertight. It could hold several inches of water or wine if it was spilled mm-hmm. um, without it draining into the third or the bottom floor, the first floor. And it held an enormous amount of weight because you know, we talk about grapes in a measure of tons, right? We bring right. in a certain amount of tons and then we put it into a fermentation tank. So you can imagine the weight of that tank with five, six tons of grapes in it being up on this floor above. It had to be enormously oh, yeah. engineered. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. And so that was so the second floor or the well, the first floor down, they crushed on the top, took the wine down to the next floor, which is where they fermented big tanks, right. big, big oak, oak tanks. And then the floor below was, was it for aging or bottling? Yes, for aging. Um, okay. It was, um, there's aging casts down there, and then eventually they dug caves. Um, and we are known as having the very first caves dug in the Napa Valley. And they were done by hand. There was no machinery to do this at the time. And since there was no refrigeration or, you know, means of even electricity, we used steam power in those days. The only way to get temperature control was to go underground. Oh, man. And this is, this is like in the early 1900s, right? Yeah, the, the winery was built, the, the Gravity Flow winery was finished in 1877. Okay. And it took six years more to hand dig the caves. It was a group of Chinese laborers who actually were... Um, resettled here because of the Transcontinental Railroad. They're the ones who dug the caves and the tunnels and blew the rock away to build the Sierra portion of the Transcontinental Railroad. God, this is fascinating. I love doing this. I find out so much stuff. So it's, I wonder, because I'd heard that the cave, I knew the caves were, I'd heard they were the first caves. I'd heard there was Chinese labor. I'm thinking stuff. You know, I never thought about where they come from. Did they they were already here and they did the railroad. That's amazing. Yeah, they they had finished their work and, uh, you know, were looking for things to do. And many were going, uh, staying in the Sierras for gold. Right. That was during the gold rush. And most people stepping off the Transcontinental Railroad, that's what they were in search of. Mm-hmm. But there was many looking for other types of work. And there was actually a small Chinatown in, in St. Helena off Pope Street. That area was actually a small Chinese settlement. <laughs> All right, that's like six new things I've learned with you today. This is great. Um, I want this this whole virus thing to go away so we can get together and have a beer, and I want to hear more. I, I want to hear I more. This um, is much more fun over a cocktail. I, yeah, but it's pretty cool. All right, I'm, I'm going to stop the tape, and I'll go get a shot of tequila. Anyway, um, it's too early in the day. But um, mm-hmm. all right, so so very successful winery, doing well. 
Any idea how large they were, how much, how much they were making? I'm just kind of curious about that. You know, it, it was not a small operation. Um, for the time, you would consider it probably enormous. Um, we mm-hmm. would consider it about a medium-sized winery probably in our nomenclature today. So they say the first vintage was roughly 50,000 cases equivalent. That's, that's, a big, that's a big number. That's a, that's a pretty good production. That's a, that's I a, mean, Yeah, that's, that's serious stuff. All right, so they're cranking along, super successful, and uh, Prohibition came, but they both were gone by the time Prohibition came, right? Is that how that worked out? Yeah, I mean... uh, Jacob and Frederick. Yeah, they were both gone by then, um, and the winery had passed, well, at least the operations of the winery had passed to Jacob's son, uh, Jacob Jr., and he was the winemaker from 1911 up until... um, the end of prohibition around 1935. Wow. So still in the and, family. Yeah. Yeah. And we were still operating. We were, we were licensed to produce uh, wine for the church and also brandy for medicinal purposes. And uh, I always liked the kid that there was a lot of sick and religious people during <laughs> prohibition. I've, I have heard that story about the, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, you had to get a prescription from your doctor, right? For brandy. I think that's how it went. Yeah. So, I don't think it was that hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, so that's a pretty rare story. A winery stayed open during prohibition. That was, there weren't many that did. So, um, that was good fortune for you guys for sure. Yeah. I heard there was only six in the area that stayed open. I don't know them all. I know BV was another one, which mm-hmm. is in our group with treasury. Right. Um, they've been around since 1900. And so they also survived prohibition. But, you know, others like Charles Krug that had been here much longer than us, uh, because my, my great great grandfather worked there, they actually ceased operation. It wasn't reopened until many years later. That's right. Because, yeah, Mark Mondavi was in here. We'd had that chat. Um, yeah. So they got through prohibition. So prohibition is lifted in 1933. Jacob, it's Jacob Jr., is still the winemaker mm-hmm. through 35. And what happens when Prohibition's over? They just they kept making Sacramento wine or they shift gears and go for it? Well, luckily, you know, we were really well positioned to get back to business because we actually had your typical wine grape varieties in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else had moved on to other things, either table grapes or other types of crops, stone fruits, hops. There was all kinds of things being grown around here. Um, a lot of livestock. And so we kind of had an advantage in that sense because we all know how long it takes to grow a grapevine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes five to six years to get back into production. So they had that little bit of advantage over um, the competitors. They had also been producing during Prohibition this very unique uh, brick. I don't know if you heard about this. We had a dehydration facility in St. Helena, and we would dehydrate grapes and press them into bricks. Huh. And then those would be sent out with a package of yeast and some instructions on what to do with it. Um, because <laughs> for, there was for, a... For, for homemade wine. This is during... Yeah. Right. Okay. Because you uh, you had uh, an exemption in the law that you could produce a certain amount of alcohol for your own consumption. So that business had continued even after Prohibition. Okay. Um, oh, so, people would get those. oh, that continued because I knew it was happening during. So the home winemakers, they kept doing it. Yeah, there was still a bit of that business continuing on because huh. people got used to making their own home brew right. until things got rolling again. Okay. And so when we got back to business, there was uh, a new gentleman that came in. Um, he was winemaker and general manager of the facility. And uh, it was a kind of unique 
um, that we hired somebody whose name ended in the last letter of I. You know, it's not a very Germanic name, but Fred Aberzini okay. um, was the the gentleman who ran the winery from the post-Prohibition days. Okay. And, yeah, and, I, was, and that family, mm-hmm. I, I know that name. That family is still around the valley big time, the Aberzinis. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and as I was talking about earlier, you know, the Germans and the Italians, they kind of kept to themselves, but... At this time, people are starting to grow. Almost all the women in my family were, were Italian women, although I carry a German name, you know. <laughs> but Fred Aberzini was an absolute entrepreneur, visionary, whatever you want to call him. He he had the idea of you know opening the doors up and inviting people in. And it, it was something that really hadn't been done before. There were cellar doors or tasting rooms around where people could try the wines, but you really couldn't go back into the, you know, operations of a winery back in those days. And it probably wasn't much to see anyway. But uh, he had these programs he set up to bring people up from the city and tour not just Behringer, but Napa Valley, you know, and, and any of the wineries that were here and even over to Sonoma. And they would do these bus tours or they'd bring people up on the train and then load them onto trucks and bring them to the winery and, and created this kind of, I call it the Disneyland for adult effect right. that Napa Valley has become. I never knew that. So he was the one that got that going. The whole hospital, you know, what is today's hospitality business in this valley, in the wine exactly. industry. Wow. So we were the first winery to offer public tours and tastings in 1934. <laughs> <laughs> Again. They just keep, the hits keep coming today, Mark. <laughs> um, but, so he was there, and then another guy started working there, some guy named Roy Raymond, right? Yeah. What's his, Roy. Roy, I remember Roy, Roy Singer. What, um, where, what was his story? Where'd he come from? Because he wasn't so, Italian or German, was he? So, no. He's an outlier. Uh, he was. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what his true background was, if he's Irish or, but, uh, you know, Roy was just, he was a man's man. I mean, he had these big biceps and triceps. I mean, he was a huge guy and very intimidating in a sense. But he was the winemaker um, for Behringer from 1956 until 1971. Oh, wow. Um, 19, 1971 being the year that we sold it, of course. Was he so um, right? Was he so he was winemaker after Fred? Or yes. In, okay. Okay. Yeah, so he would have been number four in the chain. Okay. And uh, he married into the family. He uh, took a liking to my grandfather's sister, Martha Jane Berenger, and they married. So um, that made Roy family and all of his kids and descendants, like Walt, I'm sure you know Walter. Well, yeah, and, and Roy Jr. And Roy Jr. Mm-hmm. They're uh, all descendants of Jacob Berenger as well. They're all my cousins. So, okay, so I mean, I was trying to figure this out last night. So. Roy and Walt, who've retired yep. and must be in their 70s, great guys, great winemakers, they are your cousins or uncles? So, yeah, Walter and Roy are my dad's first cousins. And, you know, and they really gave me my, my break in the business. I, um, I got into this very young, you know, growing up here. Um, we, had, we didn't own the winery anymore because we sold it in 1971. Yeah, so, so uh, I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry, man. So, yeah, yeah so the no winery, so Roy was winemaker till 70, 71, and then, then the family sold it to Nestle. 
Right. Is that right? Okay. And yeah, a little Swiss chocolate company. Yeah. What was any before we go on? I'm just kind of curious about what that was like because that that had to be big for the family. I mean, you were just by you were born in when were you born? Uh, 67. So, so you were like two years old. You were two years. You're just a little baby. Um, yeah. So you don't remember that, obviously. But any stories about that whole thing? What that was like for the family? Yeah. I mean, I was so young. I yeah. don't remember a lot of it. But we did retain ownership of a couple of the houses on the property past the sale of the winery. Okay. Um, not the Rhine House, but the Hudson House and the other North House on the property. We 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 kept, and my grandparents lived there. Oh, neat. So I do have a little bit of memories of being on the property as a kid. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, we didn't have a lot of presence there after I, I became an adult. Okay. So mm-hmm. so you're growing up in St. Helena. um, and your your parents ran the wine shop, but what else did they? Fred and Kathy Berenger, because I I remember those right. guys. And uh, yeah, what were they doing? Um, and how did those two meet? So, my parents met in high school okay. here in St. Helena. All right, um, they were high school sweethearts and um, married young, and you know raised a family here in St. Helena. Uh, I have one older sister, and uh, she. Uh, still works and lives in the, in, in the Valley here in St. Helena. So, um, you know, our whole family's been raised here for five generations. And so you grew up in St. Five generations. So you were a St. Helena kid, high school, the whole thing. What'd you, what'd you do in high school? Oh, uh, we shouldn't really talk about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, all right. That's for our next guest. All right. Never mind. No, never mind. Actually, Sorry, no, I brought it up. There's there, actually there's a, a huge synergy between uh, my path through high school and your winemakers. Um, that's why Elias and I have always been uh, pretty close because we took very similar paths. We were both musicians. Um, okay. We both had go. we we both played the trumpet, and we both played in the jazz band. We were different ages. Elias is a few years older than I am. Okay. But uh, you know, we both ended up going to winemaking school, different schools, but ended up you know, graduating, coming back to the Valley and working our whole careers essentially in the Napa Valley where we grew up. So, um, that's not a common story, ironically with most winemakers around this Valley. No. So you guys, I know he played trumpet and he got a scholarship to university of Nevada at Reno on that scholarship. That's That's how he got to college and then transferred to Davis and you played trumpet too. And that was, uh, that I, so you were a few years behind him in high school. I was there for a year and a half, and he was a four or five years behind me. He said he remembers watching me play basketball. He was like in eighth grade, and yeah. I remember. But I remember there was always the jazz band at basketball games with uh, who was the teacher, uh, the music teacher, That's Bob uh, Graff. Uh, Bob Graff, and you know yeah. it was the Saint Helena Saints. So obviously the theme song is you know when the Saints come marching in, right? And That's guys, right. Had it committed to memory. Oh my God. If I heard that song one too many times in that gym, it drive me crazy. But uh, how funny. So you and Elias were both trumpet players. How, how neat. Okay. Yeah. All right. I got yeah. it. And then, uh, so you're, oh, there's so much going on here. Um, so summertimes, were you, uh, were you working at, were you working with your folks or at the wineries? What were you doing in the summer during high school? Yeah, I mean, to keep me out of trouble, I think my dad tried to keep me working. So he uh, he started me working in the wine shop when I was 12. I'd run the register and stock shelves and do whatever he'd be done, break down boxes. Right. Um, eventually, I, I got a driver's license and realized I wanted to escape that, you know, 
envelope of control. Right. And uh, I took a job at Behringer, ironically enough. Um, at the age of 16, I was a stock clerk in the Rhine House. Really? Um, so, now, yeah. The, how'd you get now? How'd you get that job? I mean, did they know you were like a Behringer, Behringer, and all that stuff, or was that, or was that? Yeah. Okay? Was I mean, of... there was uh, a gentleman working there. Um, I don't know if you remember the old Keller's Market. Oh yeah. Um, which was right across the street from my dad's shop. But we knew everybody kind of over there, and they used to deliver groceries to my grandmother and stuff. And um, you know, I got to be really good friends with Jim Barfield, right? Um, who was he ran the grocery for many years and he ended up becoming a manager of the Rhine house later on. Okay. And, uh, he ended up hiring me and, uh, it was a great time. I you know, same kind of work. I was stocking shelves and carrying cases out to cars and people would find out, you know, it was my last name and they tried to fix me up with their daughters. But, uh, <laughs> like I don't own the place. I'm just working here. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. So those are high school but, summers. So, so was were you thinking about wine and being a winemaker, or you know, in high school? I'm I wasn't, but uh, no, with your I, I thought it, I was going the musician route, and okay. I was like Elias. I had a scholarship opportunity, um, not to Nevada, but um, which was the natural connection, I guess. Saint Helena and Nevada had some sort of connection, but I was trying for Cal State Northridge okay. um, for a full scholarship down there. And I kind of got, I got freaked out. I mean, you know, I went and did my auditions and I was visiting the campus and realized that I was making this huge lifestyle decision to become a musician living in LA playing right. the trumpet. Right. You know? So I kind of balked at it and said, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. And my parents were like, well, if you're not coming here on a scholarship, you're coming home. So I came back and just enrolled in Santa Rosa junior college to figure out what the heck I was going to do next. And I got a job working with Raymond. I went over there, and Walter hired me and put me on the bottling line. And I so this bottled is, every summer. I'm with you. So okay, and because I interrupted you earlier, so I got to for our folks out there. I know the history, but um, when Behringer sold, at the time, mm-hmm. um, Roy Raymond Senior was the winemaker guy, and his sons were Walt and Ray and and Roy, Roy, Jr., Roy yeah. Jr. and Walt were his sons. And they mm-hmm. were and they were working with their dad at Behringer's, I think, and then yeah, um, they were got it. So when they sold in seventy one, what people did, I, the gap in the story is Roy and Walter. What did they do after they sold Behringer? So yeah, well, so Roy being the winemaker, he also trained Walter. Walter was a winemaker as well, and Roy was more of a viticulturalist. So it was a really good family team. Got it. Um, it's the way most families operated in those days, in a business. So what happened is they decided to start their own winery, and in 1974, they opened Raymond Winery over on Zinfandel Lane. Got it. So the two brothers started their own winery called Raymond, Raymond Winery. Right. Got it. Okay. And that's- With their dad. Mm-hmm. Okay. With, mm-hmm. That's right, because Roy Sr. was with them. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. He lived on the property. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I remember that house. Yep. Because I, I remember mm-hmm. oh, I remember going over to- Oh, when I was starting out, I needed something. Um, I called them up. I needed some help with some forklift or something. And someone said, go see. Well, they couldn't. I think I drove right by your uh, Roy Sr.'s house, and he was out there in his garden or something like that. But Yeah, he's usually out on his right along mower. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> great family. Um, very welcoming, just like everybody when we first got, when the Schaefer showed up. Everybody was so friendly and helpful. It's um, And still to this day, it's a nice, it's a nice place. 
All right, so I'm I'm interrupting too much. So you got a job. You got a job working with your uncles at Raymond. So what yeah. <laughs> what they have you doing? I want to hear this. So well, the the first thing they did is put me on a bottling line, and uh, we're not talking the modern ones of today. We're talking the old monoblock stick and pick labeler that would probably you know tear my arm off today. But uh, we, you know, I learned the nuts and bolts of that stuff, and eventually graduated to being forklift driver and I, I drove lift and, and managed bottling operations all summer, every summer while I was going to school. Okay. Um, and then I would go back to school during the, uh, after the fall, after harvest kind of got rolling. But, uh, I got, you know, I was going to Santa Rosa and, uh, I was just taking basic education stuff, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. I was looking at engineering and some other things. And then, um, I took a couple classes as electives in viticulture just for the heck of it. Okay. And Rich, Rich Thomas was the instructor over there at the time. Many people know. Right. Uh, he, he was quite a legend um, on the other side of the hill um, in viticulture. And so I took a few of his classes, and I realized it wasn't just in my blood. It really kind of hooked me. Uh, huh. That it was something I was truly interested in and passionate about. And I did that for a couple years and then realized – Maybe this farming thing isn't what I want to do. I want to get more into the science and the winemaking perspective. Okay. So I, I talked to some people and talked to Davis, talked to Fresno, and tried to set myself up to transfer to one of those schools and ended up selecting Fresno because of the hands-on perspective of it. You right. Know, both great schools, both great programs. Just one is maybe a little more oh. uh, theory, scientific, one's a little more hands-on. You know? Right, right. Which was, we which go was, back and which forth was, on it all day, right? Yeah, which was Fresno State. <laughs> Listen, I was, I did the Davis thing, and, and you know, to tell you the truth, um, the Fresno State program, from what I've learned for, from folks like you who've been through that, much better preparation, hands-on, you know, until you do it, you physically do it, and, you know, you know, hook up a hose to a tank, you know, how do you learn how to do that in a classroom? So, Yeah, and I was doing it already because I was working in a winery, so... I kind of looked at those at that part of it and said, well, this is the way wine's made. So I want to get more involved in the hands-on part of it. Great. Um, Cause I never mount, I never minded getting dirty. I mean, I was running a lease filter on the weekends. So um, that's the most miserable job in the winery, shoveling D and lees together, pushing it through a filter. So I knew it was dirty work. <laughs> <laughs> the lees filters. Oh, bad memories. Um, yeah. We can we won't we won't describe what that's like. It's just it's it's no. a it's a necessary job. It's it's a mucky job. You get covered with just kind of like lazy, slimy, yeasty, sweet or you know sticky stuff. It's it's fine. It's no big deal. But it's just kind of like it's just like it boring. It's boring. It's, it's boring. It's boring and boring and sloppy. But someone's got to do it. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So you're at Fresno State and. Uh, I found out something I didn't know about. Who was you had a who was your roommate at Fresno State or classmate? Well, I had, oh, you had a few of them, from this sure. area. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, when I moved down there, I moved in to um, take over an empty bedroom um, with Alex Ryan. Ironically enough, Alex Ryan and I uh, knew each other from our childhood years, and his father was the. He was the head of sales or marketing for Behringer back in the Nestle days. Wow. So okay. Bill Ryan was kind of a, a legend within the Behringer organization in that um, in that era. And, of course, Alex grew up in the business and ended up at Fresno. And 
to this day, he's the president of uh, Duckhorn Vineyards. So right. we all kind of came back and, and took our paths. But but also one of my roommates at Fresno was David Duckhorn. Oh, yeah, David. Duckhorn yeah, yeah. Uh, Andy Gridley, who you may know, he sells boots barrels to all of us. Right. Uh, good friend of mine. So, yeah, there's a whole group of us that went through Fresno during that area from, you know, from this uh, region. This region. That's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. So you get out of Fresno. It's uh, what, 19? Were we in the 90s yet? Yeah, it was 1990 okay. when I graduated. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what was the next move? Well, I came back and I actually worked a full harvest with Raymond. I usually had to leave a little bit early to go down to Fresno and uh, work in the winery there. Right. So I got to work a whole full season through um, with the team. Um, and got to about the holidays and went to talk to my uncle Walt and see if he might have a full-time job for me. And <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> oh, no. No. Come on. I've God, family's tough sometimes. Really? Uncle yeah, Walt said, you know, Walt Raymond, my like, my buddy Walt Raymond, nice guy, down in Arizona, relaxing, playing golf right now. God darn it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he shut you down. Right he shut you down. He, did. oh. he didn't have anything for me. So much for family, man. I tell you. That's all right. Yeah. No, but, you know, he was trying to give me my uh, my push out of the nest, yeah. and it was the right thing to do. It was bad timing in the business because uh, the 90s were rough. Right. Um, and it was December, and there are not a lot of people hiring in the wine business, but everybody gets laid off about that time, you know, if you're right. in a harvest position, internship, whatever. So uh, I ironically found a job working for um, a larger winery called Glen Ellen. Okay. With the Benzinger family, if you know the Benzinger boys. Yep. Another um, successful family, successful family wine business for sure. At that time, legend, legendary, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah, uh, I'd agree. Not just in their business practices, but in their uh, recreational practices. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that part, but that's okay. <laughs> they were I'll at, take your word yeah, for it. They like to party and they like to ski, and um, did, we did big ski trips up to the mountains uh, as a team, and yeah, we had a lot of fun there. There's no doubt about it. And there was no holiday left unturned in terms of having a party. <laughs> Oh, the things I'm finding out from you. Um, yeah, good. So you were working. So you're working. I'm assuming in the cellar. Um, yeah, so, so. I was. I was operating a massive uh, DE filter, a okay. pressure leaf filter um, for bottling. So I received tanker trucks, made the blends, filtered it, and gave it to bottling. So I saw the wine for about 48 to 72 hours. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that was is curious because a winery that size is that something that you're kind of doing year round or is it seasonal? It was pretty year round. Wow. Um, they operated under a just in time <laughs> philosophy or JIT as it's referred to. <laughs> um, so basically, the wines were were bottled on demand. Uh, orders were placed out in the market, and then the wine would be assembled from the bulk components and you know finished up and and put into packaging. So we didn't carry a lot of inventory. Or in a warehouse, it wasn't like we do in luxury wine wanking where we we bottle essentially this the entire vintage and then deplete the warehouse. It was very different. Wow, so very different from what what we're doing now and uh, yeah, what the rest of us do. So interesting. I didn't. So they've got it in bulk, and when the orders come in, they make the blend and bottle it and ship it out to fill the order. Yep, yep, okay. exactly. Had a couple high speed bottling lines and just crank it out. It aged on the truck. <laughs> wow. That's a different world. That's a different yes. world for me, for 
for sure. <laughs> not what we're accustomed to, no. <laughs> yeah, but successful. So you're there yeah. for uh, how long were you at, uh, with the Glen Ellen crew? So I spent a year and a half with them total. They, I got a promotion halfway through to an assistant winemaker, and they moved me into the Benzinger line of wines, their, their luxury portfolio. Okay. Um, but I didn't do that for very long. In 1992, I got a phone call from my old roommate, Alex Ryan, over at Duckhorn, and um, he said that they had a position potentially opening up and wanted to know if I was interested. And um, it was really a bottom-level position. I was an assistant winemaker uh, where I was, but it was just a, a seller, you know, just a seller role. Right. Um, enologist role, if you will, um, to come over to, to join the Duckhorn team, and I, I took it. Uh, I figured I, I would take a demotion and title and everything to work for a brand as well known as Duckhorn. Oh man, yeah. I mean, because that nineteen it was nineteen ninety two, right? That's when you made, yeah, it was nineteen ninety two. And and Duckhorn, and that's kind of when Duckhorn just exploded. I mean, you were there for I think fifteen years is what I could found. And uh, that's right. It's the ninety two to two thousand seven. Tell me about that because. You know, I think Dan was still there. Dan Duckhorn, Alex was there. Oh, yeah. Tom Rinaldi. What what were the, what were all those guys doing? What were you doing? Tell me about the Duckhorn years. Oh yeah, those were great years. Um, you know, when I arrived, Duckhorn was maybe a thirty thirty five thousand case winery. Right. Um, we made like five wines. You know, like Merlot, Cabernet, Sauvignon Blanc. You know, right. Pretty straightforward. The three palms Merlot, of course. Um, Great. But then by the time I left, we had, there was only 12 employees, I think, at that time. Okay. I have a Christmas card from that year with all of us sitting on a barrel. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. But, you know, Tom was the, the winemaker, had been since the very beginning. Which was, um, 70, yeah, 78. I know that. We had the first Right, 1978. Right. Yeah. Um, and Dan and Margaret, of course, were very involved. Dan ran, he was the president of the company. Uh, Margaret really ran marketing and sales. Uh, Kelly Duckhorn was there as well. She was in uh, the marketing side. Right. Um, so it was a really tight group. We were like family. Alex ran the vineyards, uh, eventually took over running the company as Dan began to pull back and retire. Right. But, um, you know, that was a great run. We, we launched a bunch of new line extensions uh, within Duckhorn. We launched new brands. We bought property. We built wineries. That was that was a crazy time. Oh, um, it was a lot of fun though. It was crazy. I mean, um, help me. When did Paradox come online? What year? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was 1994. Was our first vintage. Um, we oh. were playing around with Zinfandel, and Dan wanted to make this like 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 a super Tuscan, but super Napa. And right. He felt that Zin was going to be it's California's variety. Let's blend it with. We wanted to blend it with Merlot, but that never really worked. It worked better with Cab because it's the universal donor. Um, but uh, the, the, those <laughs> two together, donor. it took off. Well, I, I got to, I, because I have a memory. So Schaefer was about the same size as Duckhorn was at that time, you know, and we're still the same size. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, uh, it's still the about, size, about the same say. size. And we got about five wines and, you know, about you know, 20 employees and that's it. Um, but I remember it was a wine auction in the summertime you know, charity, charity auction we have out here. And it was, we had some, uh, joint, uh, dinner with that Duckhorn Schaefer and a couple other wineries were hosting for like 50 or 60 people at someone's place. And, um, it's the beginning of the thing. A lot of people aren't there and I, you know, Dan's there and I'm, and he's, 
he goes, hey, Schaefer, Schaefer, come here. And I walk over, he's got this bottle. And he, he pulls the cork and he shows me the label. And the label's this paradox thing. I said, what's this? He goes, oh, it's the coolest thing. We're doing this new thing. And he started to describe it, you know, Zinfandel, this and this. And I thought to myself, oh, come on, really? No way. This is, there's no way this is going to, there's no way this is going to work. It's like, and he was all excited about it. And, you know, I, I kind of forgot about it. And then within a year or two, the thing explodes and, and off Dan and the Duckhorn team go to greater glory. So he was well, I good. I can't tell you how many times I gave Dan that same look and went, man, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the decoy and the migration and the whole thing, but uh, incredibly successful. Um, yeah. I had I had dinner with him about uh, last summer, I think, with Nancy and Annette and Dan and I, and it was cute. It was great to see him again. And all of a sudden, he and I are having a private conversation. He goes, he leans over. He goes, he goes, tell me. I go, what? He goes, tell me. You're still not like thirty thousand cases, are you? I go, yeah. And he goes, God, Schaefer, I told you to grow. Why didn't you do it? <laughs> I was like, and I actually said, Dan, you were right. I really blew it. And then, but, but I'm thinking. No, I made a good move. I'm happy with what we're doing, but uh, you know that that's pretty cute. I, I envy what you guys have. I mean, uh, there's two paths you can take, right? Bro? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Dan, Dan was a a very savvy businessman. You know, he's Berkeley educated in finance, and he felt that you you either grow or you pay pay taxes. That right. was his view of the, of the world. Um, but he brought in outside investors to grow, mm-hmm. and and gave up his share by the time we sold the winery. You know, he was a pretty minor owner, but, you know, he did very, very well for himself. Sure. But for you guys to still have your family winery and still be, you know, able to make that work for you guys is awesome. It's really an enviable position to be a family-owned business in this current environment. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, we, we take a lot of pride in it. We've got a great team, and I'm very lucky to be surrounded by great people and great grapes. And uh, we put it all together and, you know, cross our fingers and keep doing it just like you guys. So, yeah. Yeah. So you had a great run at Duckhorn and then, uh, you had a, another move. What happened after that? It was after, uh, what year was so that? You guys I, made a move. It was, yeah. In 2006, the, the shareholders of Duckhorn decided to sell the winery. Okay. Um, and was, it was a tough time. You know, I, you had to make that decision. You want to stay with a new owner? Yeah. Who, who's it going to be? Um, or is this time to start looking at what, maybe what your next move could be? And uh, I started talking with some friends, and um, you know, we have a friend in common down here uh, in St. Helena, Mr. Joel Gott. Yep. Um, he uh, talked to me about a project he had going on out at uh, what used to be Sutter Homes uh, Chicken Ranch on Zinfandel Lane, the Zinfandel Ranch. Right. And uh, he managed to. to put together a purchase of that property and turned it into a custom press facility or what they wanted to make into a high-end winemaking studios. Right. And uh, they hired me as their first GM uh, to come on board and went through the first year there and realized um, that that one year was my dog year, I call it. It was seven off my life. Oh, Um, no. Trying to deal with investors and, you know, clients and all that stuff. And I right. wasn't making wine and it was just, you know, I, I was not in a good place. So I decided to to take a step back from that. And uh, I stayed on as a consultant for a little while and started my own consulting business for a little bit. And that's when 2008 hit, you know, the recession hit. Right. And being a consultant during a recession is typically not the best plan of attack. 
uh, a lot of people were eliminating their consultants to save money. Mm-hmm. So I decided I needed to get back to full-time winemaking. And uh, I found this great opportunity with uh, a winery called Artessa down in Carneros. Right. And what an amazing family history they have. They were they're legitimately the oldest winemaking company in Spain, um, according to Aventos. Okay. They've been making wines. They've been making wines since 1551. And they're the the well-known brand in Spain is what again? I forgot. It's, it's Cordonu. Cordonu. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. God, 1500s. Okay. How cool is? Yeah. Oh, that must have been neat. Yeah, and they were the first uh, company to make method chaponois outside of France, and that's where cava was created. Okay. And that's the very first cava. So they had eight wineries around the world, one of them being here in California in Carneros. So I ran their facility there making mostly Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and a couple of single vineyard cabs down there. Nate, that must have been kind of fun. Was it fun to get back into making wine again? It was, and to make some varieties that I really hadn't made before. Okay. Um, I made a little bit of Pinot helping create Goldeneye at Duckhorn. Okay. I helped create the style and develop the facility and all that stuff, but it wasn't really my, my main job. We hired a winemaker to do that. I made the Duckhorn wines, but um, you know, to be able to make those wines on a regular basis uh, was really cool, and it's, it was a beautiful facility. If you've never visited it, it's got the most spectacular view of San Francisco from there. It is pretty. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. And so while you're there, you know, not to get personal, but let's get personal. At this point, you're married. You got kids. What's going on, you know, away from work? Yeah, I mean, I I got married when I was young, um, when I was working at Duckhorn. And I, I had three daughters in that marriage, but we ended up divorcing right about the same time I left Duckhorn. Okay. Um, so I kind of went to Artessa as a single man, but... Um, Met my current wife uh, a little bit later. She was actually somebody I met who was working at Duckhorn. Okay, great. Um, she's actually she was a, uh, a a pilot on sabbatical. Okay. Um, she actually flew a lot of private jets, corporate jets, all over the world, and was looking to be a little more grounded. And she moved here from Washington D.C. and got a job working in our tasting room and taking wine classes at the Culinary Institute. And uh, that's how we met. Well, that's great. That's fun. So does she still fly um, as a job or not, or just for fun? Um, No, she hasn't been flying recently. She's actually a commercial pilot now, but she actually, um, speaking of ex-wives, your your ex-wife, I believe, works for for Virgin America. She does, yeah. yeah, They work together. Oh really? Oh geez, God, Mark, this is like small world, small world city. That's great. Yeah, Liz has been a flight attendant. She's not working right now, which we're all really happy about. So I'm just taking a right. break. Yeah. So, well, Liz lived right down the street from us, down in uh, the, the Napa Yacht Club. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, we used to walk by her place, and we got to know her dog, and got to know her, and then realized my wife's like. They both work for the same company. That's <laughs> and so my my they work together on many flights. Um, oh, that's great! My wife, was, my wife was a first officer there. That's so. that's fun. Now I'm yeah. starting. To, now I'm starting to think about: Have you and I ever worked in the same cellar together? Maybe we have somewhere. Like we, we may we have. Some point. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Oh, too good. So, uh, Artessa, you were there for what? Two or three years? A little longer? Oh, so you I was were there, there for, for a while. Years. Six years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, six years, and then um, in 2015, um, the opportunity came along uh, with Behringer. I uh, 
I essentially, this is kind of funny. I saw an ad on <laughs> winejobs.com. I've been dying to hear this story, so go for it, man. Yeah. So um, in wine jobs, they had a, a position posted for an associate winemaker at Behringer. And I thought it would be kind of funny to uh, throw my resume at it just to see <laughs> what would happen. Because <laughs> I could just imagine somebody in HR getting this resume with the last name Behringer on it. Right. Just like throwing it aside, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I was way overqualified for an associate winemaker role. Um, I'd been a vice president of production in two different wineries. Yeah. So, um, but about two days later, I, I get a, a message through LinkedIn from a guy that who's the vice president of operations for treasury. And he's an old friend, an old coworker that worked for me at Duckhorn. I'd hired him right out of Davis and I put him on the bottling line because that's what <laughs> I did. Right. And, uh, was never a fan of it. He always was mad at me for putting him on the bottom because, you know, he wanted to do more than that. But right. we always, we were mountain biking buddies and we were friends, but he moved on, got his master's and ended up circling back and ended up, you know, at treasury. And so he, he had reached out to me just to see what I was up to. And I said, well, did you get my resume? He's like, what resume? <laughs> and I said, well, I sent in my resume. He goes, you did? Why? I said, well, I thought I'd be funny. He goes, well, ironically, I'm calling you about a role we might have. And I was like, oh, let's talk. So we were trying to sculpt something, you know, Lori hook was still very much there. Right. And Lori, Lori had been there for almost 30 years. Great. Um, Yeah. And great winemaker. Yeah. And she had, you know, obviously learned from the great Ed Sabaraji. We kind of skipped over Ed there. I mean, his era was one of the most significant, I think, you know, in Napa Valley winemaking history. I mean, he brought the private reserves to the forefront Had number one wines in the world from the wine spectator and really put Behringer back on the map in terms of the luxury. Portfolio. He did, and he was there kind of mid-70s, 80s, into the 90s, yeah, he was 80s, one of the, 90s, yeah. He was one of the early Fresno graduates. Okay. And and he was working with Myron Nightingale, who was after Roy. That's okay. I remember Myron. Okay. So Myron was the great scientific winemaker, one of the first. And uh, so he was training. Ed was training under Myron for many okay. years before he became head winemaker in the 80s. And they created the private reserve wines together. And then Lori came in and the same thing. There was a succession plan in place. She worked 15 years with Ed and then for 15 years post-Ed from 2000 until 2015. Wow. What a, what a lineup of winemakers at that place. It's incredible. Okay. So here you come. So what? So, yeah. So, <laughs> so what, I, I what are you to, doing there? <laughs> I was trying to get all creative and sculpt some sort of ideal role for myself, you know, that right. oh, maybe I'll work with Lori. We could do a project together, maybe create a wine around the family legacy. I could be a brand ambassador, you know, travel yeah. and promote because Lori was not always a, a huge fan of that piece of, you know, the, the job. And so, as we got further and further along in the process, I think Lori had gotten to a point where she's like, this might be a good time for me to, to think of doing something else. Wow. And so, but this was unknown to me. I, the whole time I thought I was still trying to create this role and interviewed with seven different people throughout the company. And at the end of the line, all of a sudden one day they said, okay, we want to offer you the job of chief winemaker at Behringer Vineyards. And I just, my first thing out of my mouth was what's going on with Lori? Right, and they said right. well, she's just. She, they said she's decided to um, take a sabbatical and, uh, and do some world travel and take a break from winemaking. She'd been there for thirty years. Who could blame her? And um, 
later we got to talk about it. And she said, you know, if there was anybody that I was going to be feel, feel comfortable handing this off to, it'd be you. Huh. So it worked out really well that uh, the timing was right, I guess, for both of us. And so in 2015, I became only the eighth chief winemaker in 143 years now. Wow. You feel any pressure, big guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, listen, listen, seriously. Con- first of all, congratulations. I mean, how cool is this? How cool is this, this whole full circle thing? You know, your uncles must be just cracking up. Um, everybody, oh, yeah. in, everybody in the family, your folks. And then, I mean, it's an, you know, it's an honor. It's a feathering your cap at the same, at the same time, realistically, like I said, what's it like? Is it kind of pressure, pressure situation or, I mean, but you've been making wine for a long time, but what's it, how are you doing with it? Curious. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the whole time through the process, I knew I had the resume for it. I knew I'd had my accomplishments, you know, I'd gotten winemaker of the year and I had worked with all these different bridles. I'm like, this is the time I'm ready for this. Yeah. And then you walk in the door the first time and you realize <laughs> how huge of a responsibility I've just taken on <laughs> and the reputation and the global, you know, recognition of, of the Behringer brand. Right. And, you know, assuming the shoes, if you will, of all these amazing winemakers who were my predecessors, and uh, and also inheriting a portfolio of wines that were scoring in the high 90s from Parker and from the Spectator. And you're like, holy crap, there's only one way to go with this thing, pretty much. You know, there's yeah. very little room to go up. So, yeah, it was a lot of pressure um, in the very first couple of years. And it wasn't until we got our first, you know, 2015 private reserve cab in the bottle aged and put in front of the major critics that I finally got to have a little bit of a breath of, you know, relief because uh, James Suckling gave it 99 points and that was it. That was like, like, that's when we realized, okay, we did it. We're, we're doing the right thing. Um, it's taken some of that pressure off. I'm so happy for you. I really am. I mean, because I, I remember reading about you getting the job at Barron, just like, it's like, huh? <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, you know, you, everybody gets to work and grows grapes and makes wine. And <clears throat> you have to wait a couple of years because the wine's aging. You bottle it and you have to get out and see if people like it. So good for yep. you, man. Congratulations. That's really, really, really cool. So you, you must be having fun. It's got to be a gas. It is, you know, I, I get to work with some of the greatest vineyards around and get to travel and see the world and, and spread the, the, the gospel of, of the Behringer brand around the, the planet. And not right now, but I have been <laughs> yeah. getting some frequent flyer miles. And, and that'll come back. You know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. We're, we're, we'll be back out there again for sure. Um, what, uh, you know, I, the initial pressure's off. You've got your, you know, you've been doing it for a couple of years at Behringer. You're, you're settled in. Any thoughts about what you can contribute to the whole legacy of Behringer? Um, or is that just too crazy a question? Well, I think, you know, the number one goal coming in was maintain the level of quality that exists and, and maintaining it under um, an increasingly more challenging, uh, you know, climate that we're in. Right. Um, you know, the business isn't getting any easier. Right. Um, so as people try to challenge you on costs and things like that, and still maintaining this really high level of quality. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to create something that was kind of, um, I guess, iconic 
that would be symbolic of my arrival back to the winery and my my uh, continuation of the family legacy. So we created a new wine in 2016. Oh, cool. Uh, it just got released for the first time back in November, on November 8th. Okay. And it's called The Eighth Maker. Oh, cool. The Eighth Maker. Good, mm-hmm. good name. I like good names. I like it. So, yeah. So being the eighth maker in, in the lineup um, and eights are very symbolic, both to me personally and to many cultures. Um, having traveled through Asia a lot, the number eight is really symbolic of prosperity, longevity. Um, and I happen to love the number eight because it's my favorite number. It's my wife's. And we end up getting married actually on 8808, August 8th of 2008. <laughs> I love this. So tell me about, is this under the Behringer label or is it a new label? Yeah. A new brand. It's under the Behringer label. Um, We only made a a few hundred cases. They're packed in a very fancy, um, you know, lacquered wood box that uh, is, you know, with a little booklet in there that describes the winemaking and the process. But um, it's a really cool package and uh, the wine's really solid. I mean, it's a little different style than the, our private reserve. A lot of people think of the big, huge mountain fruit tannins that right. the private reserve is supposed to go in a cellar in age four decades. Um, we wanted to make something a little different, maybe a little more polished, a little more plush, a little bit outside the normal style of Behringer. So um, we, we put that in the bottle um, a couple of years ago. We got it. It's getting some of our first reviews. It's got a 99-point rating as well from, from James Suckling, so Great. I'm pretty proud of that. And I'm assuming it's, yeah. ca- it's Cabernet, right? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Cabernet, 100%. Yeah, 100% and okay. uh, it comes mainly from the home ranch, the original property uh, in St. Helena that my great-great-grandfather bought back in 1875. So I really wanted to bring that to be a, a major component of it and then brought in a little bit of our Steinhauer off Hell Mountain to give it a little bit of punch. But, uh Cool. Yeah, it's a great blend. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is so this is brand new. Just go, I before I forget, how do pe- people want to check this out? What's the best way for them to get a bottle or, or more? Um, so, we we sell it right at the Rhine House okay. um, in Santa Lena. It's not really out there um, in, in dis- major distribution. Okay, it may get there at some point. We'll see. Um, but right now, it's only available at the winery or from our website. And is the this is is the winery? Um, taking you know will call orders if people want is it that that type of thing is because it's not we're not open to the public but if they want to buy it could they pick it up if you folks were yes interested? okay yeah we're, we're all trying to get creative right now yeah and, it's uh, a moving it's a moving target for sure yeah it's been tough because we are closed uh, to the public right now but we can do uh, pickups okay um so if you're a member of one of our wine clubs or if you place an order online or call in and place an order um we are doing one day a week i believe it's wednesdays right now for a few hours like noon to two, eleven to 2 and okay. you can drive in show your id and they'll pop it in your trunk and off you go without even uh, coming in contact with somebody. good great good idea and for all your wines you've got such a great range of them i mean because your 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 wines basically um span the whole you know from very affordable to top end high end um lots of different choices mostly all under the behringer brand right or they've got a couple other brands too yeah i mean under the behringer name we have our commercial wines you know like the whites and fundels of the world and things like that that have been around for a long time well, those are really kind of separated from our luxury business okay. those wines are made at our other facilities um 
and Paso Robles down in that, that region. Okay. Um, we only really make our luxury portfolio up here in Napa. So we now have kind of taken that Behringer Whites in and we use the name Main and Vine now. So okay. the Main and Vine tier of wines is kind of taking that over and trying to separate the Behringer name from the more commercial wines okay. and try to, because there's, there's this bit of a centering effect. I call it the lower wines kind of get, you know, pull down the luxury wines and luxury wines kind of hopefully pull up your commercial wines and you'll end up in the center. Ah, so, good point. You know, we want to be able to use the Behringer name as being the, the true luxury part of the portfolio and try to separate that a little bit. So, no, that's, that's, but we, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the private reserve wines, of course, are the main ones in that level. We have also another line of um, distinction wines, we call them, that are a Cabernet, a red blend, and then our luminous Chardonnay, which is a crisper style of Chardonnay. And then we have our uh, regional tiers like the Knights Valley Cabernet that people know so well and our Napa Valley Chardonnay, things like that. Right. No, it's mm-hmm. – it's, um... It's it's good to hear you make that comment about you know the brand and and keeping you know keeping the Behringer name synonymous with you know the best wines you make. I think that's really important. I totally agree with that, and uh, I'm glad glad's happening. But now you've got lots of great wines from all over the spectrum and lots of wonderful vineyards. The things you guys have, are you've got some dynamite vineyards you've had for a long, long time, and and we all know what uh, you know what you need to make top wines is top vineyards. So. Good to have good you right. guys have that. So, Mark, what else you got? Any any other pearls of wisdom for me before we check out here? You know, I was thinking when before we got on the on the phone here that uh, I remember uh, I did a presentation for I think it's for the premier auction here as part of the Napa Valley Vendors um, uh, annual auction, right. um, and I was asked to be on a panel um, to present some wines, and I was. I was a duck horn at this time and I had to bring a wine that I made and a wine that I didn't make and <laughs> basically tell a story about that wine I didn't make and why I chose it to go with the wine I made. And I chose Schaefer Hillside Select. Huh. I think your dad remembers this because uh, I remember he came and talked to me after it, but I, I don't know if you knew this story, but no, I haven't heard. I this. gave I gave a, a complete seminar that half of my presentation was about your winery and about <laughs> the Hillside Select wine and what I loved about it. And I learned something, and, and maybe you can verify this for me, because I'm a skier. Yeah. The Hillside Select vineyards are they named after ski slopes? Is that what I heard? Um, one of them is the uh, okay the his original. Well, actually, it wasn't his original. The original cab vineyard was called the Upper Seven, and still to this day, is seven acres up high on a hill. And uh, but then the next one, which has turned out to always be the building block of Hillside Select, is a vineyard we, he named Sunspot. And Sunspot's the name of a beautiful run in Alta, Utah, where he used to take us to ski when we were kids. And so one of those runs, you know, it's like in the at one or two in the afternoon where the, the western sun is just hitting this thing and it's springtime and, you know, it, it's getting to be a little little slushy maybe, but maybe not. But it's just, uh, that was his favorite run. And we named that Vineyard mm-hmm. Sunspot. And it's, uh, so it's, it has a lot of great meanings. You know, it's great wine. Our premier lot is always from the Sunspot Vineyard. And, uh, but great memories of growing up with my dad skiing in Utah. So... It's all nice. good. Thanks for See, this. I love those kind yeah. of stories. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I've never heard that one. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, yeah, you bet. Well, I always figured if it snowed around here, you'd have some good vineyards to ski on. That's a good slope <laughs> yeah, up there. We do. All right, Mark. Hey, thanks for taking the time. Great chatting with you. I've learned so much today, and I can hardly wait to you know do this again over a glass of wine or two. You got it. That sounds awesome. All right, man. Good luck to you. See you around. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thanks. That was fun. I can't believe how much we squeezed into an hour, something like 150 years. It was great to hear Mark's story, earning his stripes in the wine world and ending up at the perfect spot where he can really make some great wines and continue his family's legacy. I hope you'll get a chance to try his new wine, Eighth Maker, and some of the other terrific wines coming out of Behringer these days. Thanks so much for joining us here again on The Taste. If you get a chance, please post a review in Apple Podcasts as that helps other people find the show. And please feel welcome to contact us with any thoughts or ideas at podcast at We'll see you next time.